So we're going to be looking into the book of Esther, and we're going to be looking at chapters 3 and 4. Just a reminder of what happened briefly in chapters 1 and 2. Uh, we saw a king that wants glory for himself, and himself, and he wants to just glorify in himself in selfishness. This king also wanted total control over everyone. As we went through Esther chapter 1 and 2, we quickly realized that King Xerxes has limited power, and he was a king who cared nothing about the people. He was only out for his own security and glory. Queen Vashti rejected the king's command, and that meant that caused the king to blow up in rage, and he, he dethroned Queen Vashti, and he looked for a new queen. We saw in Esther chapter 2 the abuse of power we saw that this in the way that the king searched for a new queen. He'd forced loads of women to go into the palace, receive beauty treatment, and they'd sleep with the king, and then he'd choose the one he preferred. This is the king abusing his power. But we saw last time that Esther was chosen and taken into the king's palace. Esther was a Jew, and she was chosen to be the queen of Persia. The king chose Esther out of all the other women. And from Esther chapter 1 and 2, we came face to face with the Lord's sovereign hand. Although this was abuse of power and women by King Xerxes, we saw that God was bringing about his purposes. God, although he was at work using the king's evil, God hated the evil that occurred in chapters 1 and 2. God wasn't happy or indifferent. The Bible tells us that God hates injustice. And we know from the New Testament that God will bring to account all who continue in rebellion and don't turn to him. No one will get away with doing evil. Either God will deal with it through Jesus on the cross or God will deal with it on the last day when Jesus returns in judgment. But in Esther chapter 3 and 4, we see even more evil. In this passage, we see calamity comes on God's people, and we see how they respond to it. So let's now read Esther chapter 3 and 4. If you have a church Bible, that's page number 504. And in the larger print, it's page number 774. So Esther chapter 3 and reading from verse 1. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, 
he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the poor, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and he gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then on the 13th day of the month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of various provinces, and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by carriers to all the king's provinces with the, the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and, and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for the day. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he only went as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai. She was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, 
Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show it to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends a golden scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went out and carried out all of Esther's instructions. This is God's word. And the first thing we see from this passage is chapter 3. And we see in chapter 3, Haman's unrighteous plan. Back in World War II, the world was introduced to a man named Hitler. And Hitler came to power just before World War II. And Hitler had hatred for a few specific peoples, but his well-known hatred was mostly targeted at the Jews. He hated the Jews with a passion, and Hitler wanted rid of them. As he implemented his agenda, Hitler killed many Jews Hitler's plan was to eradicate all the Jews from Europe. Hitler's plan was vastly evil, where six million Jews were murdered in the Holocaust. That was utterly wicked from Hitler and many other men who carried out his plans. As we come into chapter 3, we come across another man back in history, before Hitler. And this man has a similar plan an unrighteous plan to decimate all the Jews in the provinces of King Xerxes. If you look down at the start of chapter 3, Haman is brought into power. And this, this should be a surprise. King Xerxes gives Haman the seat of honor. The king put Haman higher than all his other nobles. 
But why, why, is, why is this a surprise? If you remember back to chapter 2, the end of the passage, we heard that Mordecai saved the king from a plot that had been put in place. We see in chapter 2, verse 21, that Bigthana and Teresh became angry with the king and they decided to kill him. But Mordecai, he gets wind of their plot. Mordecai tells Queen Esther and he saves the king. And Esther tells the king that it was Mordecai who reported it. Therefore, as we come into chapter 3, it wouldn't be a surprise to see Mordecai being elevated and not Haman. Since back here in the time of Xerxes, kings were not only known for all their possessions and riches and power, but they were also known for giving generous treatment of anyone who significantly helped them. The king would usually not hold back in rewarding anyone who did something notable for them. In fact, the king would do this so that others would help him in the future. But here we see Mordecai's kind treatment of the king, it goes unnoticed. But remember this, remember Mordecai's kind treatment. This, this is, don't forget this, this will be important later on in the book. As you see in verse 23, it was noted down in the king's annals. But as chapter 3 begins, the author tells us that Haman is brought to a seat of honor. And verse 2 tells us that Mordecai, he also has some sort of role at the king's gate. We aren't, we aren't fully sure how he got it, but we know that he has this role at the king's gate. So after Mordecai is promoted, after Haman's promoted, the king orders that all the officials, they kneel down before Haman. And they pay Haman honor. But we see here that Mordecai, because he's a Jew, he doesn't kneel before Haman. And we see these other officials asking Mordecai, why don't you kneel before Haman? And why do you disobey the king's command? And then we see in verse 4 that they do this day after day. But Mordecai refuses to do it. Therefore, the officials, they tell Haman to see what he'd do. And when Haman heard about it, we see in verse 5, Haman was enraged. So we see verses 1 to 5, that Haman, he's come to power. The king has told the officials that they pay Haman honor and they kneel before him. And then we see Mordecai, he refuses to do it. Haman, he's furious. And we should be thinking, oh no, Mordecai is going to be killed Haman's not going to have mercy on him for doing this. We wouldn't be surprised to read verse 6 and hear that Haman had Mordecai put to death. But instead we come face to face with a greater evil. Haman's plan is not just to get rid of Mordecai. But instead Haman wants to destroy all of Mordecai's people. This, this has escalated rapidly. We read verse 6 and we cannot help but horror at the plan of Haman. This is wickedness in line with Hitler. This is the plan of genocide. Haman wants to kill all the Jews simply because one Jewish man didn't kneel to him. We've got to ask the question, why does Haman's anger go so far? Why does he long to kill all the Jews and not just target Mordecai? 
So we've got to think, we've got to go back in history, in the history of Haman. And Haman and the Jews have history. We see in verse 1 that Haman is the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. But why, why is that significant? Haman is an Agagite. Agag was the king over the Amalekites. The Amalekites were enemies of God. They were the first army to attack Israel as they left Egypt. The Amalekites, they were wicked people who always fought against God's people. And they were defeated by Israel, but here in Esther, it's the last place where we see any of their descendants. Haman was a descendant from Agag, the king of the Amalekites. That's why Haman wants rid of all the Jews. We see at the start of verse 6, after hearing who Mordecai's people are, he scorned the idea of just killing Mordecai. Mordecai's conduct is just an excuse for Haman to rage against the Jews he already hates. This rage from Haman isn't about Mordecai. It's about the Jews. And this rage didn't just start in Egypt when the Amalekites attacked Israel. Now this rage has been going on since the fall of man in the garden. This isn't Haman against Mordecai. This isn't the Amalekites against the Jews. This goes right back to the serpent as he led humans to fall. This is the ongoing spiritual warfare between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. In the Old Testament, Satan was going full rage to destroy God's people. Satan sought to stop the seed of the woman, the line that went from Adam to Jesus. Satan sought to stop it and bring an end to God's rescue plan. God had promised in the Garden of Eden that he would send a rescuer through the seed of the woman, through her offspring. And this was Satan's task, destroy the seed of the woman, stop the plan of God. You may remember when Jesus was born, Herod, what did he do? He killed all the baby boys at that time. Why? Satan used Herod and his aim was to destroy the seed of the woman. But Jesus, he came, he lived, died and rose again and he defeated the kingdom of Satan at the cross. Jesus bound the strong man and restricts his power. Today as God's people, Satan cannot cut off the seed of the woman. The rescuer, Jesus, has come and he's fulfilled God's rescue mission. But today, Satan, he still rages, and he brings opposition to all God's people. He wants to oppose the gospel. As Christians, as Christians there's, we've got to remember that there's a war going on. But Satan is a defeated foe. Here in Esther chapter 3, this is before Jesus, and this is just another attempt from Satan to destroy God's rescue plan. Here we see Haman's plan isn't only against the Jews, but it's against God and his plan of salvation. If you look down into verse 7, Haman casts a lot to choose a day and a month when he will destroy the Jews, and it lands on the 12th month. Haman gets his way as he tells the king that there's a people that don't obey the king. The king shouldn't tolerate them. He knows that the king wants full control over everyone. Therefore, Haman thinks, if I tell the king these people don't obey you, then the king 
will do what I want. And King Xerxes, he's just totally indifferent. He doesn't care. Just, just do with the people as you please. King Xerxes doesn't have a clue that his queen, Esther, is also Jewish. He just basically says, yeah, whatever, do what you want with the people. I'm not fussed. You can destroy all the Jews. And the king makes a law that on the 13th day of the 12th month, that all the Jews are to be destroyed. And he makes this known through all his provinces and tells every nationality so that they'll be ready for this day. And then after planning a genocide on the Jews, King Xerxes and Haman, they sit down for a drink. Their work is done. They can now relax and look forward to that day. It's almost like they're pleased with planning a genocide. They're content with planning mur to murder 15 million, around about 15 million Jews. Just look at what sin does to you. Such wickedness. And this is what the Lord God hates. The Bible tells us in Proverbs about six things that the Lord hates. And three of these six are here. It says in Proverbs that the Lord hates hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devices wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil. God hates this and it's vile in his sight and it will be dealt with by God. And all the wickedness in the world today will be dealt with by God. No one will get away with wickedness. But here we see in the city of Susa that they were bewildered. The people had no idea why this law had come in. The people were confused why all the Jews were going to be killed. And we see from this genocide that there was more going on than just the rage of Haman but Satan he was trying to stop God's plan Satan was trying to stop God from fulfilling his promise Satan was doing something that the next man we meet knows won't be stopped we now meet Mordecai and Mordecai believes that the promise of God will be fulfilled Mordecai knows that God has promised a rescuer therefore God will bring a rescuer we move into chapter 4 and we see Mordecai's unshakable hope. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 14, Mordecai's unshakable hope. As chapter 3 ended, the news story spread around all the provinces. The news reached Mordecai and obviously he's, he's in distress. Mordecai is maybe feeling responsible for what has happened He's maybe thinking, maybe I should have just paid honor to Haman. But then he's thinking, no, I can't do that. But Mordecai, he doesn't go to Haman and seek restoration. Instead, he tears his clothes, puts on sackcloth and ashes, and he's wailing loudly and bitterly. And Mordecai wants, to see he wants people to see him because he goes to the king's gate. And he cannot, we, we see at the start of chapter three, 4 that he cannot go any closer because he'd probably be killed. Because being sad in the king's present, presence wasn't tolerated. And this news hasn't just spread all around Susa, but in all 127 provinces. And verse 3 tells us that there was a great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. 
This is a horrific moment in Bible history. The Jews have a death sentence. All the Jews are going to be wiped out. This, of course, causes an immense amount of despair. But what is, what is going on here with the Jews' response? Why don't the Jews try and get a crowd together in a protest against the law? Like we see today where environmentalists block the road and seek to get their voice out. Why don't the Jews just do that? Or why don't they form an army ready for the day of their destruction? What is their plan here? To help us understand what's going on, we need to look at Joel chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. Here in Joel, calamity was coming on God's people. But if they turn to the Lord, the Lord promises to stop the calamity coming on them. Notice Joel 2, verse 12 to 14, it says, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. Grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. In Esther chapter 4, we see the exact same language. The Jews are turning to the Lord and they're crying out to him. We saw last time God's people are here in a pagan land And we saw that Mordecai didn't want people to know Esther's nationality. But now in this chapter, everybody knows who the Jews are. Everyone sees the Jews mourning, weeping, and fasting. The Jews are openly seeking after the God of heaven. From this part in the Bible, God is using the wickedness of Haman to bring his people back to himself. The people of God come crying out to the Lord. Here in this passage, we don't get the exact words. They cried out to the Lord, but it's clear that that's what they were doing. They sought after the God who is gracious and compassionate. Last time I did mention that the Jews should have been in their own land, Israel. But we don't know what's fully going on here in Persia. It could have been the case or maybe not, but what... Whatever the Jews are, wherever the Jews are at in their relationship to God, we see them now seeking after him. And I think when we look at Joel 2, it's a covenantal seeking of God. God's people know that God promises to hear and deliver them if they turn to him in the face of calamity. God had promised to stop calamity if his people sought after him. But we as God's people today may think, well, if calamity comes and suffering comes into our lives, does that mean that God will always stop the calamity if we seek him? We know that God doesn't always deliver us from calamity. And of course, one day God will deliver us from all our pain. But this promise in Joel was for God's Old Testament people here in their situation. But what we do know is that God can deliver us. God will strengthen us and God will be with us in our sufferings. What suffering did here in Esther was it caused God's people to seek after him. And in our day-to-day, suffering is like an alarm clock. 
It wakes us up and causes us to go and seek the living God who is in control. I'm not saying that all suffering is a result of sin. Suffering comes on us all and it comes because we're living in a broken world. But in the time of suffering, it causes discomfort and it reminds us that we, as God's people, don't belong in this world. And we are longing for a better world, a place where there's no suffering, no pain, no evil, and no calamities. Suffering helps us remember that this world is not our home. We belong to a better home where the Lord has wiped away every trace of pain. And suffering is also a time where we can go to our loving Heavenly Father, knowing He is good and He hears our prayers and He can deliver us from our pain. God doesn't always deliver us straight away, and we might not understand why, but God will one day deliver us fully, and that helps us to trust Him and seek Him as we suffer. Here in Esther, we see that God's people responded well to suffering. They have much distress, they weep, they mourn, they don't hide their tears, but along with their distress, they don't lose hope. They seek after God. Isn't, isn't that a comfort to us as God's people? When calamity comes in our life, we have God. We have a Father in heaven who cares for us. We have a Father in heaven who goes through our sufferings with us. Just think of the world. What do they have in times of sufferings? All they can do is hope for the best, take each day at a time. They have no father who dearly loves them and and a future hope for them because they have not trusted in the Lord Jesus. We as Christians have a father who dearly loves us, who is there for us in, in our calamity and every day of our life. We see here Mordecai openly weeps and mourns. Esther hears of it. So she decides, I know what will help him. I'll give him some clothes. That will help him. Then he can come and see me. But Mordecai rejects, rejects them. And Esther hears this. And she knows there's a problem. This, this just shows how detached Esther is from her people. She has no idea that her people have a death sentence. Esther, as we saw last time, is a child of God living in a pagan palace. But what Esther says in verse 8 is significant. But what Mordecai says in verse 8 is significant. He told Hathak to show Esther the new law and to instruct her to go into the king's presence, to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Notice the last words Mordecai uses, her people. Esther's secret is out. Esther is a Jew. Mordecai tells Esther to go and plead with the king on behalf of her people, the Jews. But what does Esther do in response? Notice verses 9 to 11. Esther basically says, I'm not doing that. Everyone knows if I go to the king uninvited, I'll probably be killed. And I've not seen him for 30 days now. Mordecai, come on, this won't work. I can't do that. But then Mordecai, he cuts to the heart. And here we see 
his unshakable hope and his wake-up call to Esther. In verse 13 to 14, Mordecai tells Esther she's still Jewish. This involves her. She won't escape. But verse 14 is amazing. Mordecai believes even if Esther doesn't speak up, the Jews will be delivered another way. Mordecai doesn't say they might be delivered, but he says that they will be deliver- delivered. Deliverance will come from another place. Let's, let's just think about that. Mordecai has just started mourning and wailing and fasting. He has started to seek after God, and he's gone to Esther to bring about God's deliverance. Mordecai has acted. He's gone after God's help in the face of calamity. But verse 14, Mordecai knows that God will deliver his people. Mordecai knows that God is sovereign. Mordecai knows that he won't allow his people to perish, that God won't allow his people to perish. Yet we also see Mordecai acting and seeking the Lord. Mordecai doesn't think, oh, the Lord is sovereign. He will sort it. I'll just do nothing. No, Mordecai knows that God is sovereign but he also knows that he has a responsibility, and his responsibility is to call out to God. Mordecai rests on the fact that God will raise up a rescuer, and the Jews can't be destroyed, because God's plan is to send a rescuer from them. Mordecai acts on his faith in God. Mordecai knows that God usually works through ordinary means to save his people. So Mordecai Acts knowing that God will save his people and maybe, maybe they will say, he will save his people through Queen Esther. Maybe God has put Esther on the throne for this time and he will save his people through her. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God will save his people. But we have a duty. We have the duty as God's people to do what he wants us to do. But notice Mordecai's comment, deliverance will come from another place if you remain silent. This is another great encouragement to us. God is in sovereign control over this world. It doesn't depend on us. The old children's song says, he's got the whole world in his hands. We are called to do what we can, but it's not our responsibility to save People. It's our responsibility to be a witness, to pray for the lost, to live as God wants. Mordecai tells Esther to do your duty, but remember, God's salvation doesn't depend on you. It depends on God. So what is Esther going to do? Is Esther going to risk her life? How will she respond to Mordecai? Let's see in verses 15 to 17. Esther's uncomfortable choice, verses 15 to 17. In sports matches, there's often a moment of play, a decision by the referee that is called the turning point in the game. Often this can be a player that's sent off for foul play. It can be a goal for the leading team to clinch the victory. Or it can be a substitution of a player who comes on and he changes the game. Here in the book of Esther, there's a similar situation. This is Esther's turning point. As we discovered last time, Esther went from a nobody to the queen of Persia. And she was a Jewish girl living in a pagan palace. 
We saw that Esther had an identity crisis. Her Hebrew name was Hadasha, but she was known as Esther in the Persian kingdom. And no one in the palace knew that Esther was a Jew. But we come to a point in her life that she has to make a choice. Will she associate herself with her own people or will she remain silent? Will she do her duty as a Jew and act on behalf of her people or will she reject it out of fear or hopelessness? There's a real choice here for Esther to make and it's a fearful one. It's a choice that might cost her. It might cost her her life. Esther sees a calling on her life to plead for her people. This is ultimately God's purpose for Esther as she became queen. But you can just hear the what if questions going through Esther's mind. What if the king kills me? What if this plan doesn't work? Maybe, maybe God can send somebody else. And I think Mordecai is asking Esther to think, what can you do at this moment? And I think this is a question that we can ask ourselves today as Christians. What is it in our lives that God has brought for us to do today? What has God put in our lives today as Christians to do for his glory? Maybe you're at school and God calls you to be a witness to your friends. And also at school, maybe God calls you not to go along with the crowd. Possibly you might be raising up children and God calls you to bring them up in the Lord. For you, it might be taking opportunities at work to share Jesus with those in your workplace. You might be older and God calls you to keep praying for your lost loved ones, even though it's been years. Whatever it is in your life circumstances today, are you doing what you can for the sake of serving the Lord? It might be a fearful thing in your current life circumstances to serve the Lord. You might feel like you don't have much to offer. But what is it that God has put in your life today that he calls you to do? Whatever it is, serve the Lord with the circumstances he's given you. Knowing that he's sovereign and he does use us as his people. And like Esther, she faint-heartedly does obey the Lord. She does commit to it. Even though she's extremely fearful, she does commit to going to the king, as we see in verse 16. And she wants all the Jews to fast for her, and she submits to going to the king. Esther submits to doing what God has brought her to do at this stage in her life. And next time we will see what happens to Esther, she goes to the king but as we end this, this week, we need to look forward. We need to look forward to another person who was called to do something on behalf of their people. We look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark 10:45 tells us that Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The Bible tells us in Romans 5 verse 8 that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus went to the cross for his people. The plan of salvation was that Jesus would die in the place of his people. Jesus took the sin of all who would trust in him. Just as Esther went to the king to plead for the salvation of the Jews, Jesus went to the cross of Calvary to die for our sin. 
He died that we might be saved. Jesus didn't need persuading. No, Jesus willingly died because he loves the church and he gave himself up for her to redeem her at the cross. And Jesus calls you to come and follow him. Come, give your life to him. Receive his love and his forgiveness and receive the salvation that he has won at the cross that you might be saved. Chapter 4 ends with Esther thinking, will the king allow me to go into his presence? Will the king allow me to come? As we consider this question, we have a king who always allows us to come to him. We have a king who we don't have to hope that he'll allow us. We have a king who always allows us to come to him for help. We have the Lord God as our king, the Lord God who is the one who sees our needs and gives us access to him at any time. King Xerxes, he didn't have a clue what was going on in Esther's life, but we have a king who knows all our ways and all the details of our lives. God is our king who knows all our ways and he's with us in all of them. So let's finish together by singing all my ways are known to him.
let's close in prayer. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Amen.